Romans 7. Sin taking occasion by the commandment wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, which is covetousness. For without the law, sin was dead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much again for, for bringing us here to worship you, Lord. I pray that as we dig into your word here, Lord, that you would, you would teach us. You would teach us what your word says, Father, um, that you would make me invisible in this and Everybody here would see you high and lifted up and see how how low and, and dead man is apart from you. We just thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word, Father. And I pray that you do so this morning as I seek to expound your word to your people for the edification of your church, for the glory of your name. In the name of Christ, I pray. sin might abound, right? When the law entered, sin abounded. And the, what he answered in chapter 6 was, well, if sin abounds, and it says in chapter 5 that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Therefore, we should keep on sinning, right? It's that way grace can abound more and more. And he answers that objection in chapter 6. But also in that objection was the law entered that sin might abound. But remember in the Jewish mind, the law was way up here, right? It was all about the law. It was about the Tanakh, what they would say, or uh, the Old Covenant. It was, it was always pointing back to that. And, uh, or the Torah. And Paul says, when that law entered, sin abounded. So now all of a sudden you got another objection, Paul. That you just said the law entered, that sin might abound. Now answer that for us. And that's what we're seeking to do in chapter 7. Is, so the law entered, that sin might abound. And remember in chapter 6, in verse 14, it says, For you're not under the law, but under grace. So he says that about the law, too. The law entered that sin might abound, and you're not under the law. So, Paul, now you got some explaining to do, right? And that's how they say it. You got some explaining to do. So that's what he's doing in chapter 7. He's expounding on it. So that's the parenthesis, is chapter 6 and 7, that he's answering these questions. So and that's where we're at today. So it says. The first point is the law of sin. Once again, Paul raises an objection by what he just said. It's been two chapters of Paul declaring the truth and then dealing with the objection that might be raised. 
the, if you will, logical conclusion to what he just said. Or I think it would be better yet to say the illogical conclusion to what he just said, right? If he says sin, that the law entered and sin might abound, it would be illogical to say, well, then we should keep on sinning. But that was the objection. And he, in this chapter, is answering the objection to what he just stated in chapter 5 of the law entering. And in handling of that, he raised another objection, right? He just raises another objection in this chapter, and that's what we're dealing with right now. And what is that objection? Namely, is is the law sin? He's dealing with the law, and then he just made a, he just made a statement in verses uh, five and six. For when we are in the flesh, the motions of sin, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But we now we are delivered from the law that being dead, wherein we were held. That we should serve in newness of spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. The law there shows that you have something inside of you that when the law entered, it inflamed it and made you sin more. So the, the question is, is the law sin? All of a sudden the law comes in and this, this thing inside of us gets inflamed and, and comes out and wants to sin more. So is the law sin? If the law increases sin, like Romans 5, and if we were in the flesh, our sins, passions are inflamed by the law, in verse 5, then we must conclude that the law is sin. And since the law, sin, and death are so closely related, they must all be the same thing, right? That's the objection. He doesn't mention death here, but why, we can go through Scripture and see law, sin, and death are so closely related, the argument is they're all the same thing. If, as Paul says, we are delivered from the law, which he says in verse 6, and if you're familiar with Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21, Jesus would come forth. What would he come forth? And they, they, she said, the angel said, you shall name him Jesus. Why? For he shall save his people from their sins. From their sins. Being delivered from sins and being delivered from the law. We see that over and over again in Scripture. They must be the same thing. But what's his statement? What does he say about it? Is the law sin? He says, God forbid. May it never be. That's what he says. So, what is the law then? If it's not sin, if Paul didn't just prove that the law was sin, what, did, what is it? Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. First Timothy one, eight through ten. It says, But we know, but this is still Paul here. This is Paul writing to Timothy. Same author. He says right here, but we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man. But for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly, for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. Woo-wee, Paul. That's a lot. He gives us a lot there. That's what the law was for. But what does he say about the law? He says the law is good. 
if a man use it lawfully. That means, in the negative sense, that a man does not use it to try to earn his salvation. The law was not given for that. So the negative sense is, you do not use the law to try to earn your salvation, to earn your justification before God. I don't stand just before God because I kept the law. The law was not given to man to earn his salvation. Remember, Paul tells us why it was given. The law entered, why? So that sin might abound. It doesn't say the law entered that you might earn your salvation, that you might earn your justification before God. The law entered that sin might abound. Why? So when sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And I don't know if you remember this, but back when I preached on that, I also mentioned that the law entered that sin might abound, but Christ entered as the law was there. So sin had abounded because of the law, but Christ entered when that same law was there. What did Christ not do? Sin did not abound in Christ. He came in and he kept that law. So the law cannot be sin, right? It wasn't given for your justification, but on the flip side, the law was given to lead you to Christ. Why? Because we see that we cannot keep the law. And the sin within us is inflamed by the law. Therefore, we look to Christ to be saved. Turn to Galatians chapter 3. Three twenty-four. justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under that schoolmaster. The law came and was our schoolmaster. The word there means it was our tutor. It was our guardian. It was our guide to bring us to Christ. That's what the law was for. The law wasn't for you to keep it to earn that justification. What does the text say? That we might be justified by faith. Not justified by the law. The law was our schoolmaster, was our tutor to point us to Christ. How, though? How does the law do that? The law, I mean, the law doesn't come alongside and walk alongside you in life, right? The law is just, just written down on paper, a scroll, or back on a stone. Because we see our guilt before a holy God when we look at that law. We see we are guilty. That law, what it does is it shows that you are guilty before God. Every single one of us. Nobody is immune from this. And by recognizing no matter how hard I try, I can never keep that law. But I keep most of it. All these things that I kept since my youth. Is somebody familiar with that saying? Yeah, the rich young ruler. And what did Jesus say? Well, just go ahead and just sell everything you have and follow me. And what did he not do? Which showed that he had not kept all those things since his youth. Because none of us have. No matter how hard we try. Because we've got to keep it perfect. 
You must keep the law perfectly. If you want to put yourself under that law, you must do it 100%. Obviously, we know the book of James says, if you've kept the whole law yet offended in one point, you're guilty of all. I've kept 612 commands. Well, there's 613. And that one will send you to hell. So by recognizing no matter how hard I try to keep the law, I cannot keep it perfectly. That's how the law points us to Christ. That I was under the law and all it did was inflame the desire I already had within me for disobedience. We were already disobedient. When the law enters, what does it do? It inflames inside of us to be more disobedient. So therefore, this is how the law does it. So therefore, I needed somebody to somebody to save me from it. I needed saved from it because I couldn't save myself. Because as long as I, I, I looked at that law and as long as I tried and worked, I could never keep it. And I always stood guilty before God. So the law showed me that. It showed me my brokenness. It showed me my deadness. Why? And by doing that, I look, I need a Savior. I need somebody to save me from it. And it's not you. And it's not me. And it's not my father or my mother or my brother or my sister. It is God and God alone. The law did that. It pointed me to him. It pointed me to the lawkeeper. The law pointed me to the lawkeeper. And I know in scripture, you know, it says that Moses, the, the law came through Moses, but God gave Moses the law. God gave Moses the law, then he stepped into time and he fulfilled that law and he kept that law. So he was the law keeper. He was the law giver and the law keeper. The law, as it says in Hebrews, it says it was a shadow of good things to come. What is that? Christ. The law was a shadow of good things to come. The law was a shadow of Christ. When I look to the law, I see a couple things. I see that I can't keep it. And not only that, but it makes me want to sin more. I also see it pointing to a Savior who did keep it for me. That's why the law is good. The law is good because it points me to the Savior. It's good not because I can keep it and earn my salvation, but because it points me to a good Savior who has earned my salvation for me. Let me add this real quick before we move on. There is nothing in and of the law that is bad or sinful. The problem is not the law. The problem is us. We are the problem. The law is not the problem. We are the problem. God has given us a law, and the problem wasn't the law that He gave us. The law was perfect. It was good. It was righteous. The problem was us. That we were totally depraved. And we are the ones that can't keep it. We are the ones who, when we're told not to do something, we want to do it. That's not the law's fault, right? And therefore, God doesn't lower His standard because man can't keep the law. <coughs> what God does is even greater than lowering His standard. I've heard the argument. Why doesn't God lower His standard? Because God's perfection, and His standard has to be perfection. He's infinitely perfect. Nothing that comes from Him is less than perfect. So when He gives the law, it's perfect. And He doesn't lower His standard. When He gave the law, 
and, and man can't keep it. He doesn't lower his standard. Okay, well, you can't keep it, so let me put it down here so you can keep it. He does not do that. What he did was greater than that. He stepped down, took on flesh, and fulfilled the law for us. That is greater than lowering his standard. He fulfilled the law and kept it in our place as our substitute. See, we often think of Christ as our substitute on the cross. That's the only time we think of Him being our substitute is when He's hanging on the cross. But if Christ wasn't your substitute in His life, fulfilling that law, He is not your substitute on that cross when He paid for your sin. We only often think about substitutionary atonement as just those, those three hours on the cross, but it was the 30 years before the cross as well. So if he didn't keep the law for us, we're still under that law and headed towards death. That's why they're so closely related. Because when God gave the law, the law is not sin. But because the law entered, you sinned more. And because you sinned more, you earned death. The law always goes that way. But we're not under that law anymore. Christ in His earthly ministry was our substitute from His life, from His birth to His life, to His death, to His resurrection, to His ascension. It was all as a substitute for His elect. Which, as I've said, is greater than God lowering His standards. It's the greatest act of love that could have ever happened. I'm not trying to sound cheesy or anything, but that's what it is. There's no greater love than this, that a man lay down his life for his friend. Right? He was a substitute and died for those that couldn't keep the law. So God forbid the law is sin. The law is good and must be used lawfully to bring us and others to Christ. The second point is loving sin. Paul goes on here. Let's back to Romans here. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, that's not like a horse. I had not known law, or I had not known sin, but by the law. I had not known sin, but by the law. Nay means, or rather, rather, I had not known sin by the law, but by the law. The law made it known. What does that mean? I think obviously we can take this out of context and we can make all kinds of fancy arguments from it. However, Paul's already stated in chapter 1 through 3 that men know they're sinners. But then he just says right now, I wouldn't even know how to, I would have known sin except for the law. Well, Paul, you just said in Romans chapter 1 through 3, you spent three chapters displaying that men know that they're sinners. And therefore will have no excuse on judgment day. You won't have the excuse to say, I did not know. What if nobody ever preached to them? They still know. Because we have conscience. Our conscience tells us, don't do this. We have creation that points to there being a creator. So not only do you know that you sin, you know you sinned against your creator. And you know this. And Paul's already dealt with that, right? So what in the world would he be saying here? I believe he means the exceedingfulness of sin. Not just that he was a sinner, but how exceeding it was in him. He was exceeding, exceedingly sinful. I have two reasons here, and they're both in the text. 
First is knowing sin. He says, I had not known sin. The word for known here, there's two times in this text it says known. Both of the words are different words. It's not the same word in the English. But this first word is one that is intimate knowledge. And I know some of us know the, the arguments here. You know, this intimate knowledge, this intimate knowledge of sin, it's the idea of, say, like Adam knowing his wife. Right? Adam, it wasn't like, oh yeah, I know you, you're Eve. No, it was an intimate knowledge of his wife. Just like in Matthew chapter 7 when Jesus said, depart from me, I never knew you. That's what he's talking about. It wasn't like, oh, I didn't know who created you. Like, he knew who the person was, but he never had an intimate knowledge with them. That's what this word here is, for known. It's that intimate knowledge of sin. I had never had an intimate knowledge with you, what Jesus said. I had not had an intimate knowledge with sin. An intimate relationship with sin is the argument here. He sinned and knew it cognitively, but he also knew it intimately and exceedingly. The second reason, he knew it more intimately because the law showed him that lust is consciousness. So he knows stealing is wrong, right? I think we can, this is the, one of the easiest things to prove and, and any time when you're out doing evangelism, right? Well, there's nothing, you know, nothing's really wrong. You're wrong. Well, let me see your wallet. All right, and walk away with it. I guarantee they think it's wrong. Why? Because it's theirs. That's stealing. We all know stealing is wrong. But the law displays that even the thought of wanting to steal that is wrong. We know it's wrong when somebody steals from us. Just the very desire to have someone else's stuff is sin. And that was revealed by the law. There, it was revealed big time in the law. If you go back and read it in like Leviticus, it wasn't just that thou shalt not covet. He says, you shall not covet your, your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's this, your neighbor's that, this, that. He, 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 he expands it. You may argue too, you know, it's okay to lust after stuff, right? It's okay to covet because it's not hurting anybody else. It's just me coveting like, if I covet your phone there, you don't even know I'm coveting it. So it doesn't hurt anybody, right? The law tells us otherwise. The law tells us it is wrong to do that. You know you're a sinner, but it's far worse than you can imagine. That's what this is saying. You know you've stolen before, but just the desire to steal is already sin, and the law shows us that. We are exceedingly sinful. Not just sinful in our actions, but also sinful in our thoughts. And the law revealed that lusting is sin, and in that, it has revealed that you are a serial luster and a thief or a covet coveter. You see how the sin, the, the law entering increased sin? Let me give you another example. You know you shouldn't commit adultery, right? We know this. We should not commit adultery. It's forbidden by the law to lay with another man's wife or another person's spouse or simply anybody that you're not married to. 
That's committing adultery. It's, it's forbidden by the law. You know this. However, the very thought of it is also sinful. You know how we know that? The law revealed that to us. Jesus said, you've already committed adultery in your heart. So just not the act in and of itself is sinful, but the thought is sinful. Well, I guess if I'm already thinking, I might as well do it, right? No. That's even more sinful because then you're hurting more people. And we've all probably done this. That's, that should show us something, right? That should show us how exceedingly sinful we are, right? Because we've all probably done this. We know sin intimately, and we know all sins. So once again, we are without excuse. The law is not sin because it revealed how exceedingly sinful we actually are. This law doesn't make us sin, but it reveals the sin that is already in us. And in the adding of more law, we see the more exceedingly sinful that we are. The more laws that come in, the more laws we break, right? Remember chapter 3. Paul's already dealt with the exceeding sinfulness of man. When he says, you know, our mouths are sinful, our lips are sinful, our hands, our feet, our eyes, all sinful. So when the law comes in, all those members, as we saw last week, all those members are inflamed to bring out more sin. Let's move on here. In verse 8. I'll finish in verse 7. Verse For I had not known sin except the law had said, Thou shalt not cover. I, I had not known lust except the law said, Thou shalt not cover. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. Who is the ESV? Do you want to read the Yeah. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I must have looked at the old ESV or something. It said coveting of all kinds. Um, NASB said coveting of every kind. KJV uses, you know, old concupiscence. None of us use that in our sentences today, right? None of us really use coveting probably, right? The law produced in me all kinds, every kind of covetousness. Paul goes on here. He knew... It may be wrong to covet in a certain sense, but the law revealed it in every sense. The word here, like I already mentioned, could be coveting of every kind. This is the law increasing sin. Covetousness is wrong, but the law came in and showed every kind of coveting is wrong. You may know it's wrong to covet your neighbor's money or wife. But it's also wrong to cover their house, their livestock, their children, etc., right? Coveting of every kind is condemned by the law, and the law reveals that in us. And because the law reveals it, we want to do it. <laughs> Isn't it? It's all, like, what's wrong with us? We covet in every way. Actually, without even going to the law, we can go to our modern culture. 
and see this and prove this. I can prove this without even opening the scriptures to us. Companies know this. These, these big companies, they know this. So what do they do? They advertise. The latest, greatest thing. Why do they advertise? Is it because we're all content? <laughs> Advertising would not be effective if we were all content. It's because we all covet. So they advertise to put it before your eyes and it produces a want for it. It produces a covetousness. I want that now. Let me give you an example. Without the advertisement, but somewhat like that. Who watches Food Network? <laughs> you ever notice as you're watching, you have like that Homer Simpson and like, ah, like <laughs> I want that so bad. Whatever they are making. You weren't even hungry. I just finished dinner. I sat down and I walked, turned on Triple D and all of a sudden I'm starving. That's a picture of covetousness. Y'all know that? That's what covetousness really is. The word for covetousness, it means a desire or a craving or a longing. So we see a real physical picture of it and are sitting down watching somebody make something good on television that we don't currently have. Like, guys, Eddie's not in my kitchen making this for me, and I want it so bad, so I go in there and I try to make something, and it's horrible. <laughs> so I send my wife back. <laughs> but that's, that's what covets, coveting is. Our culture uses advertisement to get your desire for a new phone or car or TV in front of you. They put it in front of you, then you want it. And our human nature is the one. We want it now, right? I don't want to wait either. I don't want to wait. The iPhone 37's out. I don't want to get the 36. I don't even know what number they're on now. But the phone's the exact same as the iPhone 1. Just a little bigger. But you hadn't even thought about a new phone. My phone's perfectly fine. I ain't thought about one until a commercial comes up on television. Then all of a sudden, ooh. Ooh, I want that. T-Mobile, how can I upgrade? Nothing wrong with my truck. <laughs> but I see a new truck commercial on television, all of a sudden I think about this, and it shows me one thing that my truck doesn't have, and I, I want it. But then you go get that truck, and then, get, then it's missing the one thing that I did have, so it's still not perfect, so now I'm going to want the next one. This works. We know this works. Companies know this works. You know why? Because we're never content. We're never content. We always want more. We're always coveting more. We actually have a modern day quick for it and it's keeping up with the Joneses, right? We don't want to call the covetousness for what it is. It's keeping up with the Joneses. My neighbor has this. Now I want that. But I don't just want that. I want something newer, better, and bigger than that. But the same thing. That's because of a problem. However, to back to the text, the law has made all this known to us. I proved it, I believe, from our modern culture without even looking at the scriptures. But Paul declares it, that the law declares that to us. That we together are a covetous people. We want what we don't have. When the law entered, 
it inflamed that sin too. It brought out every kind of coveting. Every kind of coveting. Coveting. And you know this if you know yourself at all. Actually, just being in sales with many years, I knew in all, at least in car buying sense, there's a 72 hour window when you're hot to buy that car. You got 72 hours to close. After that, the numbers dropped so drastically. You know why? Because they had that car buying fever. They got that covetousness. I want it right now. Move us all to, to let that pass before we did something so we don't regret doing something. Right? We've seen Paul here starting to answer the question of the law and also showing that the law is not sin. It is not sin. The law is good, it's given by a good God to his people. And we are bad, so we can't keep the law. So we break the law. And when that law entered, it inflamed sin that was already in us, and it brought about every kind of covetousness. So what does this mean to us here? Our application. The call to faith and repentance. To the unbelieving, this means to you that you're carried about by your lust. You are carried about by your lust. By your covetousness. Law and sin own you. That's they, they own you. That's You can go nowhere else. You can do nothing else. You have every kind of covetousness and lust. And it's inside you. And it's coming out all the time. And you can never get away from it. You aren't in control as much as you'd like to think you are. I'm in control of my life, right? No, you're not. You're carried about with every kind of covetousness. Sin is in control. And the law will have your head being in sin and under the law, the only response when you depart from this life is justice. I know we, in our culture we like to just cry for justice, right? We don't really want justice. God's justice. God's justice would be Him declaring us all guilty and casting us all into hell. Just as if you were to, say, drive down this road right here 100 miles an hour, and you were hit and killed somebody out here, you deserve justice, right? You took somebody's life. You not only broke the law, I don't know what speed limit is, probably 25, but you're going 100 miles an hour, you're going 75 miles over the speed limit, and you hit and kill somebody, you deserve justice. What you've done against God is infinitely greater than that. Infinitely greater than that. You took a, a finite person's life, but your, your sins against an infinite God are infinitely greater than anything that you can do to any person. And you deserve justice for that. What is justice for violating an eternal law against an eternal God? It's eternal punishment. The payment is equal to the offense. And the higher up you offend, the worse the punishment. Right? Y'all know this. Kids can offend kids and it's not going to be that big a deal. They're going to get mad. I don't want to play with Johnny anymore. Kid offends a parent. They might get a butt spanking. Parent offends a parent. It can get a little worse. You go offend a police officer. It's going to get worse. 
a judge, the president, but we've offended a holy and righteous God. The worst person to offend. A holy, perfect, infinitely just God, and your payment will be eternal hell for violating Him. Unless you repent and believe upon Christ, who is the law keeper. Who is the one that the law points to? The law is the schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And if you see your guilt this, this morning, it's a sign to turn to Him and not turn away from Him. As we saw yesterday. As men were out there preaching yesterday. And, and, the, and the ones that were convicted yelling back. Mocking. Even though we never said anything about their sin. Their, their specific sin that was out in front of everybody. What should have been the response which was repentance and belief upon Christ. Not to turn around and mock. Don't wait another day. Repent and look to Christ for your salvation. To the believer here. Are you currently battling with covetousness or lust? The idea of having something you don't currently have. I want something I don't currently have. Whether it's physical or material. Is this your big desire? My big desire is to get something else that I don't have. Getting the new thing, the new phone or TV or vehicle or video game. Is that your greatest desire? Is that the focus of your life? Does that take up more of your thinking than anything else? When I wake up in the morning, all I can think about is this new thing that I want to go buy. And then you know what happens? You go and buy that thing and then it's the next thing. Because it will never fulfill. Does it take up more, most of your thinking? So be honest with yourself. There's no need to lie to yourself about that. Obviously, you might be able to lie to others, but at least be honest with ourselves about this. Do we get more excited about the newest iPhone or game system than you do about Christ? That should be the question we should be asking ourselves. When I get excited, and I say this actually with a complete brown shirt on, when I get excited about a football game, do I get that, that excited about Christ? If not, there's something wrong with me. <clears throat> That's the real question. That's the one that we should check ourselves with. Is whatever I'm getting, is whatever I want getting me more excited than getting to know Christ more? That should excite us, right? To get to know Christ more. Because when you know Christ, you want to get to know Him more, right? If you, oh, I did that. I heard it yesterday. I already repented. Uh, we don't ever stop doing that. It's knowing Christ is getting, wanting to get to know Him more. Now this isn't just coveting or lusting after material things, but it's physical as well. Are you desiring someone you're not married to? That's a question for a married person and a single person, right? As a single person, you can have a desire for another person, but that desire should come from wanting to serve Christ better, not simply lust-driven. As a married person, you have no right to this at all, no matter what, at all, ever. Adultery is sin any way you slice it. 
And last thing, as we already just mentioned, is it all? This desire should not be there in us married folks. The desire for adultery, the desire for another person should not even be there. And when it does, you know what we should do? We should hack his head off. When that, head, when that, when that adultery pops up, hack it off with the gospel. Christ died for that. For me. I even know I know there's even faithful spouses sometimes have these, these, these thoughts. But we should say as Paul does, right? God forbid. God forbid I ever have that thought. You know what this shows in us though? That we don't love Christ enough. That's the problem. If every new material thing can catch and hold your attention, it's probably time to be in God's Word and prayer Forget this culture, right? Forget the culture. This culture, this, I probably say some things I shouldn't say about this culture, but forget this culture. That tells you you need this and need that. You aren't supposed to be part of it as a Christian. You are not supposed to be part of this culture, this dying culture. You should be the weirdo in the culture, right? You should be, as me and Jesse talked about, you should be the Jesus freak. You should be the butt of all the jokes at your workplace, right? Or school. All he or she cares about is Jesus. What a weirdo. Praise God. We should be coveting more time with our Lord. You think about that? We're coveting things. Covet more time with God. Covet more time to be the feet of Jesus. Covet more time away from the culture and with Him. When you do that, you'll, you'll notice a change. You might look back a year from now and say, I'm so glad I spent more time with Christ and less time in the culture, less time lusting after things, people, whatever it may be. Repent and believe upon Him, believers, right? And covet time with Him. Our last point here is our call to war. As if what I previously dealt with wasn't war. But I thought about this yesterday a lot, being in the field. You know, we are called the church militant. That's, that's a term for, for the church of Christ that remains on earth. There's a church that's in heaven, right? They're the church triumphant. We're the church militant. Why? Because we are engaged in warfare here on earth. The, the, the church in heaven isn't engaged in the warfare that we're engaged in. They were, but they're not anymore. While we're still here before the consummation of all things, as the church, we are called to war. Paul uses actually uses this terminology often. You're called a soldier. He uses it often. You're a soldier. You call Timothy a soldier, a good soldier, a fellow soldier. It's a champion of the cause of Christ. That's what it is. Paul even speaks of swords and shields and helmets. 
metaphorically as armor we're to have for war, right? Why? Because you're a soldier. Because you're the church militant, you are to go out to war. And we are in war. We are a militia, spiritually speaking. What does this mean? Well, it means the church needs us all. There's a gentleman yesterday who was speaking about not needing to go to church and used that often quoted verse where two or three are gathered together. I personally, I didn't want to engage him too much. Brother Zach was engaged in him. I, I just wanted to sit and listen. I didn't really feel like debating the guy. I did inject one thought into it, though. The man pretty much said, I don't need to go to church. I can have church at home. I said, the church might need you, though. It's not all about you. Oh, I can, I can have church by myself at my house. What about the people in the church that need you to be there? Yes, you will suffer. And he would. And he does. I guarantee. He suffers spiritually because he's not part of the church. But the church also suffers because he's not part of the church. But you guys are here, right? And as the church militant, as soldiers, we aren't all the same. This was my thoughts yesterday. God has some tanks. He has some snipers. He has some green berets. He has some seals. Right? He has all kinds of different people to do different things within the church. And we do this when we go out and evangelize too. I said this to Jason before. Jason out there kind of with the Gatling gun just firing off on everybody. And I'm coming up trying to sneak up on somebody. <laughs> I'm better with the one-on-one. -on -one. I don't even have a desire to get up there and do what he does. But God uses both of them. You know why? Because we're the church militant. We, we, we all come together and form that. Maybe God hasn't called you to serve in a certain area or a certain way. However, what He has called you to do, do it. And do it with all your might. God uses each of us in a different way, right? We are all gifted the same. We wouldn't need each other to be around, right? If we all had the same gifts and all did the same stuff. But we don't. We all have different gifts. And God uses us in different ways. When we come together, we work together to get the desired end. And that's the edification of the saints and the glorification of God. So know yourself and your gifts and use them mightily for His glory as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Amen.